Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Phoenix and Dallas. This is shaping up like a textbook playoff series where the teams don't seem to be willing to bring their effort and focus on the road. Both of these teams are extremely difficult to guard. When you look at the way that they're set up, I feel like Phoenix is more of an uh, of a multifaceted offensive threat in the sense that Chris Paul and Devin Booker are primarily responsible for just that initial compromising of the defense. Once they get that initial, you know, defensive help rotation and they kick out, the rest of the guys can take it from there. There's so much talent surrounding them on the floor. Cam Johnson is fantastic at attacking closeouts and can shoot. Mikhail Bridges had a rough night tonight, but he can attack closeouts and shoot. DeAndre Ayton, obviously, you know, he's one of the most capable young bigs that we have in the league. They have a, a different type of attack. It's more kind of like backloaded. But at the same time, Dallas is also extremely difficult to guard. The difference is is that Dinwiddie and Brunson and Luka all have more of a responsibility to try to score when they they make that initial move. And the guys off the ball are more shooters, spot-up shooters, traditional spot-up threats rather than, you know, close-out attacking kind of guys. You're not expecting Reggie Bullock to 
put the ball on the floor and hit a bunch of one dribble pull-ups or Dorian Finney-Smith or Maxi Kleber, any of those guys. It's kind of more of a, you know, we're, it's different. It's more front-loaded in that sense. Both teams, though, are extremely difficult to guard. And both teams have shown and when they're at home that they're willing to do so, that they're willing to do the work to do so. But it goes both ways because those offenses, you know, for Phoenix in particular, they depend on guys like Mikhail Bridges having big games. They depend on DeAndre Ayton really struggled finishing in the paint tonight. They That's an important part of their offense. You know, Cam Johnson, the same thing. They've kind of removed campaign, uh, not entirely from the rotation, but they're using him a lot less. But they depend on those guys to play well. So when they go on the road and those guys don't play well, their offense ceases to function. And for Dallas, it's shooting. They go on the road. And they depend on Reggie Bullock to make shots. And they depend on Dorian Finney-Smith to make shots. He makes eight threes in game four and then struggles in game five. And that's the difference. When they go on the road, those guys can't make shots. And then their offense ceases to function. Their defense starts to fall apart. And, you know, that's just kind of how this goes. But that's exactly why it's so important during the regular season to fight for things like home court. You know, as much as we criticize the NBA regular season for lacking urgency, and it does. And there's a lot of things that I would do to fix that. But there is the ever-present need for home court. And there are teams, uniquely equipped teams. It's usually up here. There are uniquely equipped teams that are immune to that sort of thing. You know, like, you don't doubt that Miami was going to go into game six tonight and play with a certain amount of focus and effort. You don't doubt Milwaukee, for instance. Like, we're going to talk more about Milwaukee-Boston later tonight. Like, that game, Milwaukee being at home for game six means nothing because both of those teams travel so well. And if Milwaukee loses game six, Boston doesn't instantly become a shoe-in favorite because they've shown a propensity to be able to lose at home. They've done it twice. You know, but there are two, those two different kinds of teams in the league. If I'm not mistaken, Phoenix is now two and four on the road in this playoff run. There's been some really ugly stretches in there. It's something that they're going to have to figure out. The biggest thing that's standing out to me right now that concerns me about Phoenix is Chris Paul, and particularly his ability to score the basketball. Now, Dallas mixes up coverages a lot. They do drop with Dwight Powell. They do a little bit more switching with Maxi Cleaver, but they do some drop with him as well. Uh, most importantly, the guards are doing an amazing job for Dallas of fighting over the top of the screen and making things tough on Chris. And he's, his aggressiveness has toned way back. Through his first eight playoff games, he was incredibly dominant as a scorer. And he just hasn't been the same in the last four games. What specifically concerns me about that, because I do think Phoenix is going to win game seven. And we'll talk, a, I'm going to preview game seven a little bit tonight because I think that's a little bit more interesting than diving into this particular game. What concerns me with Chris Paul's scoring struggles is future matchups. So, Golden State does a ton of switching. If they get into the uh, to the finals, Boston switches everything, especially against a team like Phoenix. And Miami, if they happen to be, if they, Miami happens to get out, they're going to switch everything. And Milwaukee, we've literally seen them against Phoenix. They did drop the to start the series, but. Towards the end of the series, they went to Giannis at the five and switched everything. Against switching defenses, Chris Paul is going to have to score. We've talked a lot on this show about the way you attack switching defenses. We're going to get further into it when we can start talking about Boston. But you attack switching defenses by beating people off the dribble and getting into the lane and forcing help so that you can get teams in rotation. And, you know, Chris Paul, it's going to be a, there's going to be a ton on his plate specifically to do that. Now, I haven't heard anything about an injury for Chris. I haven't heard anything. I, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if he's banged up. I don't know if there's some residual mental stuff from the incident with his family and the crowd. I don't know what's going on with Chris. He just doesn't seem to be the same. And that, if I'm a Phoenix Suns fan, that would concern me because specifically, if you get out of this round, facing Golden State, facing a Miami or a Boston, those three teams are going to do a ton of switching. And you can just about guarantee that towards the end of the series, Milwaukee will do a bunch of switching as well, just like they're doing to Boston right now. And that specifically changes Chris Paul's role. Against Dwight Powell and Maxi Kleba, when he's going into drops all night, he can get over the top of that screen and play maestro all night long and just throw the ball around to shooters. 
and he can still have impact despite not being a great scorer. But once he gets into the switching defense heavy system, he's going to have to create shots. And, and so that, that's the one thing that concerns me. Devin Booker finally had a rough night tonight. But coming into tonight, he was averaging 25.4 points per game on an astounding 63% true shooting. So my whole thing with Devin Booker is that he's been consistent. So I'm not going to overthink him having one specific bad game. I wanted to look forward to go, uh, game seven because there's one specific move that I think Dallas has on the table. And there's one specific move that I think Phoenix has on the table to try to improve their chances. So for Dallas in particular, their offense hasn't traveled in this series. They're averaging better than 10 points better at home than they are on the road in Phoenix. They're only averaging 105.6 points per 100 possessions in Phoenix. When you zoom in on it specifically, when they've played after tonight, when they've played with Dwight Powell on the floor, in 74 minutes, they're minus 19. But in 214 minutes without him, they're plus 8. The problem is, is Dwight Powell is not guarded. When, he's, when he pops anywhere to the perimeter, he's not guarded. And then he does present that lob threat for Luka. So if, you know, if the guard, so for instance, Mikhail Bridges is doing an amazing job fighting over the top of screens and shutting off some of Luka's stuff in pick and roll. But if anybody else is in that action, they're dying on the screen. Chris got caught on a ton of screens tonight. A bunch of the guys are struggling with that. Once they get caught on the screen, it's a lob dunk every time with Dwight Powell. So there's, it's not that Dwight Powell's not giving you anything. He's also been very good defensively. He's a big, important rebounder. He brings a lot to the table. But the problem is, is the overall amount of space that Luka and, and, and Spencer Dinwiddie and Jalen Brunson have to operate when uh, Powell is out there is just not great. And as a result, it's more of like a four-out, one-in concept as opposed to a five-out concept. It just allows DeAndre Ayton to hawk the paint. And if DeAndre Ayton can hawk the paint, that turns all of those guys into mid-range jump shooters, and it just makes the game a lot harder. And so, you know, Dwight Powell's been playing, you know, right around – I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's uh, right around 15 minutes per game, right? So in a Game 7 environment – you might have to go up to Maxi and be like, look, man, I'm going to need 42 minutes out of you tonight. And we'll give you two three-minute breaks to start the second and fourth quarters or to end the first and second, first and third quarters where you can take a little bit of a breather, but I'm going to need 42 out of you in game seven. Because with Maxi Kleba on the floor, there's two very important reasons why he has to be out there. One, in any sort of off-ball situation, it's just like the Al Horford thing with Brooke Lopez. You park him in the weak side corner, and all of a sudden, DeAndre Ayton can't help. So that's obviously important. The second part of it is it takes Phoenix out of their drop coverage. Because when you pick and pop, so when they set, when they have Kleber set the screen, Kleba set the screen and pop, the Mikhail Bridges or whoever it is that's chasing Luca has to switch now. Because if he chases over the top, Maxi's wide open every single time. And so it's just, if for me, if I'm Dallas and I'm rolling up into Phoenix for one game to potentially advance to the conference finals, I'm going up to Maxi Kleba and I'm saying, hey, man, I need 42 minutes out of you. And the same thing goes for Phoenix. So, you know, and it's, it's the general concept because for Phoenix, this guy is Jay Crowder. And they basically took him out of the rotation in the second half tonight. We saw him briefly in the fourth quarter when the game was already over. But there's a difference between... You know, when we're looking at shooting percentages, specifically three-point shooting percentages, like, oh, you know, Jay Crowder shoots whatever this percentage is from three, or, you know, Desmond Bain shoots this percentage from three. Well, there's a huge difference between the way the two players are guarded. Desmond Bain is a great example, but I'll keep it in this series. Let's talk about Reggie Bullock instead of Desmond Bain. So if I'm comparing Desmond Bain, or excuse me, Reggie Bullock to Jay Crowder, their three-point percentages aren't one and the same because every shot that Jay Crowder gets is completely wide open because Dallas is ignoring him. Whereas Reggie Bullock, if he catches the ball, Phoenix is panic chasing him and accounting for him everywhere on the floor, although they lost him a lot tonight. The point is, is like it's not so much about what your shooting percentage is. It's about whether or not you're guarded or unguarded. Because if I let Reggie Bullock sit wide open the way that Jay Crowder was all season, he'd shoot 65% from three. His, his percentages dip because he's guarded differently. And you see that impact Phoenix's offense. So they've done some interesting things to try to counter this by putting tucking him further away. Because, 
you know, uh, Nikias Duncan did an awesome job laying this out with some video today on his Twitter feed. But when, you know, when you have a non-shooter one pass away, we talked about this a lot with Giannis when they're with their post-ups. Like Milwaukee does a really nice job of tucking a good shooter one pass away because that first defender that's one pass away has the best potential to disrupt whatever your star is trying to do. And so when Phoenix tries to run a pick and roll with DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul, but Jay Crowder is at the top of the key, which is where he's been spotting up for the most part in this series, things just get janked up because whoever's guarding Jay Crowder is now basically triple the, becoming that third defender in the pick and roll. Just makes it way harder. But here's the thing. You can tuck him in the weak side corner, but now his guy who's guarding him in the weak side corner is sitting under the basket. And it's effectively the same predicament. So that's another situation. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head here, but I looked earlier today. Phoenix is playing a lot better without Jay Crowder. And so that might be the move that they have to go to at game, in Game 7 at home. Hey, Mikael Bridges, I need 40 out of you. Hey, Cam Johnson, I need 40 out of you. You know, maybe less Torrey Craig, less, less Jay Crowder give themselves the best chance. But, I mean, at the end of the day, we have seen both teams' best punches in this series. And Phoenix's best punch is better. They're far likely. They're far likely to to throw their best punch in Game Seven. So I'm still leaning with Phoenix. Bummed that <laughs> lost some money on Phoenix tonight, but I, I still believe they are going to win this series. Before we move on, all of you guys who are listening, I sincerely appreciate you guys joining us tonight. Please like this video. I would really, really appreciate that. Before we move on, here's a word from our sponsor. The playoffs are heating up, and you can make every game feel like Game 7 on FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. Throughout the playoffs, all customers can place a no-sweat, same-game parlay each week. You'll get up to $20 in free bets if you don't win. FanDuel has so many ways to play, and best of all, when you do win, you'll get paid faster than a fast break. My favorite same-game parlay this week is Boston to win Game 5 by at least 5.5 points, and for Drew Holiday to go under 21.5. He's been great in the two wins, but in both Boston wins, Drew Holiday has scored less than 20 points. I think Boston's going to put on a defensive clinic in Game 5. That's how I think it's going to go down. New to FanDuel? Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code JasonT. Once again, that's promo code JasonT. And if you already have an account, you're all set to bet. No sweat. Either way, you'll get up to $20 in free bets if your same-game parlay during the playoffs doesn't win. FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. All right, let's move on to the Sixers finally being put out of their misery tonight by the Miami Heat. I, I made two bets tonight, both money line bets, both on the road team in a game six. But I made those bets for very different reasons. I bet on Phoenix because I think they have a lot more talent than Dallas. I bet on Miami because they don't have as much talent, but because I could count on them to bring their very best punch in a closeout game on the road. You know, there's a lot of attention thrown towards heat culture. It's kind of like a buzzword. There's, you know, I think it gets overplayed as it pertains to comparing that to the rest of the better teams in the league, right? Like, I don't think Miami has some massive culture advantage over Golden State or a massive culture advantage over, like, the LA Clippers or the Milwaukee Bucks or many of the other teams around the league. However, they do absolutely have a culture advantage over the middling teams in the league and the teams at the bottom. You know, especially when you see in environments like this, there's a toughness that goes that goes into the way that they play. Eric Spolstra has said before that the types of players that Miami targets are edgy. And they're usually guys that have had, you know, a different path to their position in the NBA at currently. They usually have a chip on their shoulder. They usually weren't, you know, high-level draft picks, guys that you know, were used to success. They're usually guys that have kind of been down in the dumps a little bit at various points in their basketball careers. And that breeds a certain level of toughness. They're an extremely, you know, when it comes to when it comes to the the talent that's on the roster, you can always count on a handful of things. You can count on them being in their peak physical condition. You can count on them being mentally tough. You can count on them being well coached. We've talked a lot about Miami over the course of this playoff run and the way that they have, you know, I, I compared them in a, re, in a recent show to that 
those viral clips that go around in the NBA of like three or four NBA players all doing the same thing at the same time, whether it's all complaining at the rep at the same time or all running down in transition at the same time and they go viral because it looks bizarre because it looks like almost like video game characters. That's what Miami looks like on defense and on offense. Everything they do is is so disciplined and it's you can count on a certain level of attention to detail from that team every single night. And it's their biggest advantage in a lot of these situations. You know, specifically when it comes to coaching and, and like a night like tonight, one of the things that they've been doing consistently throughout this entire playoff run, but it I you know, it's obviously was deeply impactful tonight is they do things like switch coverages. Like one possession you come down, they're in a zone. The next position you come down, they're in a man. One time you run a pick and roll, they trap it. The next time that you run a pick and roll, they're in a traditional drop. Then they randomly switch it. Do you guys understand how hard that is to do in the flow of a basketball game? Do you understand how much time and effort when it comes to coaching, when it, how much time and effort it takes to instill those things? You know, it's funny because I coach high school basketball and I can't tell you how many times uh, my coaching staff and I, we will ask our players to run a play and they won't do it, but they're kids, you know, so you expect that to a certain extent. But even when I was in college, it was the same thing. Can't tell you how many times the coach on the sideline would make a call with grown men. When I was playing NAIA ball, like it's like we had a 29-year-old point guard and a 31-year-old shooting guard. I was one of the young guys at age 22. And it was, you know, and for the record, and for all you kids out there trying to play one day, or are playing right now in high school or in college, one of the easiest ways to solidify your spot in a rotation is to be dependable when it comes to running plays right or being in the right spots in your defensive scheme and always being where the coach needs you to be in whatever his system is. But Miami has that down to a T. That's why I bet on them tonight. And then we look at the other side with Philly. And could I, I tweeted this out earlier. Is there a four-man grouping in this playoff field that is more talented than Joel Embiid, James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, and Tobias Harris? There probably is. If we really looked hard, you could probably say like a Giannis, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez is above them, right? You could say like a Steph Clay, Jordan Poole, Draymond Green, but that, that's probably the end of that list. Maybe Chris Paul, Booker, Aiton, and Bridges, right? But like, that Philly quartet is right there with them. But they just, I mean, three games in the series, four games, games one, two, and games five and six, they gave a piss poor effort, which is astounding under the circumstances. And those first two games in Miami, yeah, Embiid's out, I get it, but they punted those games. They quit in the first quarter of game five. The big reason why I bet on Miami tonight was because my because Philly quit in the first quarter of Game 5 of a pivotal 2-2 playoff series. And then after the game, Joel Embiid came out and basically implied that he doesn't want to be playing. He had this long, drawn-out quote about how, you know, if, it, if he's in a lose-lose situation because if he plays, he won't play well. But if he doesn't play, everyone will call him soft. Well, here's the thing, dude. You're on national TV. And Game 3 and Game 4 were on national TV. You had a broken face and you were recovering from a concussion in those two games. And we saw you sell your soul on the court on, on defense. And then at game five and six, you just stopped. You just didn't do it. Now, okay, like maybe is it possible that there is stuff going on that puts you in a position where, you know, uh, as the series was progressing, things got worse? I don't know. It's hard to jump to that conclusion. All I know is that you had those same injuries in game three and game four and... You didn't play hard. Anybody on the roster. James Harden took two shots in that second half tonight. How bizarre is that? There's a bunch of stuff going on in the in the in the area of toughness and just metal and and all of those little intangible basketball qualities. There were so many things for Philly in this series that went south. And guess what? That's what happened last year. Philly had more talent than Atlanta. Philly had more talent than Miami. They lost both of those series. You know, I, 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 that's one of those things, like when we're getting into the top of the league, when we're comparing you to Kevin Durant 
and LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo and Steph Curry. We're talking about guys that bring it every single night, especially at least in the postseason, and set a certain tone that trickles down the roster. For whatever for whatever reason, that just doesn't happen with Philly. And it's bizarre. But I, before we move on, I want to give some credit to Miami because, like, again, they're, I, I described them in our last show that talked about Miami. I described them as a sponge in the desert that they squeeze every last drop out of. There's no chance in the world that that Miami's going to leave points on the table, that Miami's going to leave an opportunity on the table. They will get the absolute most out of their talent. You know, it's funny because I put in my notes, Philly's big mistake. And I put that during the game because all I could think of is like, you know who'd be a, a guy to have in your foxhole for a game like this is Jimmy Butler. And then as fate would have it, Jimmy Butler after the game, quote, he's talking about Embiid. Love him. I'm proud of him. I still wish I was on his team. I definitely love the Miami Heat, though. I got so much respect and love for Joel Embiid. That was their big mistake. They chose Tobias Harris instead of Jimmy Butler in that summer. And I mean, there's some conflicting intel there. Apparently, Philly might have offered him four years instead of five years or whatever it was. And there's, you know, obviously Jimmy had an affinity for Miami and he fits in perfect to that system. So I get it. But we far too often in these situations, we underestimate the way that that toughness and metal factors in to these playoff series. Just like Eric Spolster said after game five, you know, you work so hard on a scheme, you work hard on strategy, you come up with a plan, but really all of that goes out the window and it comes down to who goes out and makes the extra efforts, who goes out and is willing to do the things that other people are not willing to do on the floor. So where do we go from here if you're Philly? Well, let's start with Harden. What do you do with James Harden? Really weird game tonight. Wasn't attacking the rim. Wasn't put it, not even putting the refs in a position where they had to try to make a decision about whether or not he was fouled. Two shot attempts in the second half. Really weird night. But I've said this before, and 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 it's it's what I truly believe. You keep Harden, despite the fact that he will be overpaid the minute you put pen to paper, for two reasons. First of all, he's an asset. At some point down the line, you'll be able to trade him and you'll be able to get something back in return. Whereas if you don't sign him, you get nothing. But two, aside from tonight, tonight was weird. You know, like I think I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be as hard on Harden for tonight as I would be if he was the true leader of the team, the way he was when he was in Houston. This is Joel Embiid's team. He came out flat. Everyone else followed. James Harden, because of his physical decline, is not capable right now of hitting the Jets. He could have taken 10 shots in that second half and they still would have lost, to be clear. He's just, with his physical decline, he's not capable of it at this point in time. Remains to be seen if he'll be able to do it in the future. So I'm not going to be as hard on him. But for, for the most part in this postseason, I thought Harden did pretty well given his physical limitations. I thought in games uh, two through uh, three through five of this series, particularly in game five, I thought he was the only sixer that showed up. And obviously, he was a monster in Game 4. Did it would knock him down. This, his whole impact in this postseason was mainly knocking down threes and playmaking. But that's all he's capable of right now. So to his credit, I actually, you know, the way I look at it, if you're Philly and you're looking at you, if you're, if, if you're Daryl Morey and you're looking at this roster, I actually like a lot of things about this roster. Tyrese Maxey is really good. Guys, he's in his second season. And he had monster playoff games in this playoff run. He was a huge part of why they beat Toronto his ability to get out and transition. He reminds me, he's not as good as Jordan Poole, um, doesn't have that that kind of side-to-side shiftiness and the off-the-dribble jump shooting, but he's a very good shooter already, and he has that Jordan Poole straight-line drive threat that can be so devastating in the NBA, especially in a spread floor. I love Tyrese Maxey's game. Tobias Harris, he's overpaid, sure, but he's a very good basketball player, and for him to be your third or fourth best player as a guy who can guard the other team's best wing, exploit mismatches, spot up off the ball, attack closeouts, score in transition, all the things that he can do, that's a huge weapon to have on your roster. Joel Embiid, you know, we're going to talk about him in a minute. He's Joel Embiid's great, you know? And then James Harden is that adult in the room on the perimeter. I talked a lot about this in the Boston series after last night, right? Boston's biggest weakness right now is they don't have a player 
that understands the flow of a basketball game, that understands when things are getting off the rails offensively and when to rein them in. Just an adult with the basketball. They don't they, a, like a traditional point guard type of concept. They don't have that guy in Boston. That's a value there. And one last thing on the Harden thing, like he's 32. I is it going to happen? I don't know. Probably not. But there is a chance too, and this is another reason why you extend him. There's a chance that this was the season where Harden got humbled in some ways. He probably realized in this playoff run that he tried to tap into some things that weren't there anymore. And he may go into this offseason with a renewed motivation to try to improve his physical conditioning. We're going to learn a lot about James Harden with the way he comes into training camp next season. Last note on Philly, I think they have to fire Doc Rivers. He had some moments in this postseason, to be clear. I thought he outcoached Nick Nurse in the first round. But here's the thing. The toughness element, if it's not going to come from a player, it has to come from your coach. Look at the Celtics. The Celtics had issues with toughness consistently over the previous few years. Ime Udoka came in and completely changed that. Younger, more recently in the league, a guy who brings a ton of toughness when he was a player, and he inflicted that on his players in his locker room. What I would do is I'd fire Doc Rivers, and I'd find a guy like Ime Udoka. I have to do some research to find some specific examples, but I'd look for someone that has a toughness type of identity that can inflict that on this group because that's what this group needs. And before we move on entirely, I have one last note. I, on the Danny Green injury, I have no idea if Joel Embiid flopped into his leg. I have my suspicions, but I'm not going to jump to that conclusion. I'm really, really bummed out for Danny Green. He's not on a guaranteed contract next year. Didn't look good. We don't see. We don't know the MRI results yet, but it, we can all be pretty sure that's bad. And he probably wouldn't be able to finish rehab until he's 36 years old. So I don't know if we're going to see him play NBA basketball again, and that really bums me out. I'm not going to comment on that play. But what I am going to do is take this opportunity to once again tell you guys that this flopping shit has to be taken out of the league. It is terrible for the league in terms of the health of the game of basketball. It's terrible for the television product. Joel Embiid became a he became a freaking caricature of himself tonight. He was falling on almost every single play. There was a play where he was running back on defense in transition and tripped over himself and fell. It's it's like I've never seen anything like it. It's bad. It's bad for the health of the game. It's bad for the television product. And most importantly, it's not safe. Again, I'm not referencing that play. I'm just saying, especially as a big human being, every time you willingly and purposefully fall on the floor in traffic, you put everyone else around you at risk. You put their legs at risk. You put their ankles at risk. You put their knees at risk. And you willingly make that decision. And this is where I have to go at the NBA because this has been a problem for the better part of a decade now. And they let this happen. Go turn on a game from like 2002. Go turn on a game from like 1992. Tell me how much flopping you see. This is a newish problem in the last decade or so. And it's 1000% because it gets rewarded. I shared out a tweet today. You could see it on my feed. Joel Embiid get drawing a foul on P.J. Tucker on a pull-up jump shot at the free throw line where he literally does not get touched and kicks both of his legs in the air like he does on every single shot attempt and flails and screams and gets a foul call. It worked. Why would he stop? What, what incentive is there for Joel Embiid to stop flopping when it works? And it's a significant chunk of his offense. The irony is, average 12 free throw attempts in the regular season is down to nine in the postseason. Drop from 28 points a game, or 30 points a game in the, in the, 31 points a game in the regular season down to 24 points per game in the postseason. When you rely on getting to the foul line, and, they, and it still works to a certain extent, but it works less, 
It's no surprise that it stops functioning for you. Look at the guys at the top of the league. LeBron James is not dependent on getting to the foul line. Steph Curry is not dependent on getting to the foul line. Jokic is not dependent on getting to the foul line. Neither is Giannis. None of those guys are serial floppers. They rely on putting the ball in the damn basket. And I just, it's it's bad for Embiid in his own development. It's bad for the health of the league. And I, it. If he didn't, if he's not responsible for hurting Danny Green today, he's going to be responsible for hurting someone in the future. Because a giant 270-pound human falling all over the place in traffic, like he did a, half, a dozen times tonight, everyone's planted. Everyone's standing around him. It's dangerous. And it's embarrassing. Objectively unlikable. And it's terrible for the game of basketball. And I'm just ready for it to be over. I'm sick of it. And, and I feel really bad for Danny Green. I hope I hope that we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You'll be okay. We have a pretty shocking Lakers-related quote today, oh, I think. This comes from Doug Gottlieb's radio show. It's Bill Plaschke talking. He says, quote, I've heard that Phil would like LeBron traded. I've just heard that. I do know that Phil would like to keep Westbrook and try to make it work with him. Jason, can you even believe what you're hearing? Oh, my gosh, man. Well, I mean, so it's been well documented. We've talked about this a million times on the show. Jeannie Buss has surrounded herself, her experts, the people that she relies on, her advisors are all personal connections and not mm -hmm. professional, you know, people that are in the weeds or in the work, in the grind of things right now. And even, you know, even like, the, the, like arguably the most competent person in their front office right now is Rob Palinka. And I would argue he's a bottom 10 GM in the NBA, at mm -hmm. least, if not even lower than that. But it's like, this is what happens. Like, what happens if you surround yourself with advisors who consistently have a track record of giving bad advice? Well, you get a guy like Magic Johnson saying that we need to get the basketball out of LeBron's hands. You get a guy like Magic Johnson saying that we need to surround LeBron with playmakers instead of shooters. And then you get Magic Johnson suddenly halfway through the season being like, oh shit, we need shooters. Let's trade our only good starting center in Avicii Zubac and to bring back a defender, uh, a shooter that couldn't defend and then essentially couldn't even play in their rotation. You get ridiculous asset management. Like, like they literally had to sign Tyson Chandler in the middle of the season and as a result, or as a result of them letting Brooke Lopez walk, they let Brooke Lopez was on the record saying he wanted to be in LA, but I think it was because he was a big man who liked to shoot threes that Magic Johnson was like, nah, no thanks. You know, you have Kurt Rambis walking. Mm -hmm. Kurt Rambis thinks more DeAndre Jordan is the answer. That's what's going to happen when your advisors don't know what they're talking about. Phil Phil Jackson destroyed the New York Knicks as an executive. Traded Tyson Chandler for nothing. He's the guy who signed Joe Kim Noah to four years, $72 million, two years after he was any good, and the year after he was injured all season. The year before, he started two games. 
Like it just, it's ridiculous. So what's the natural progression of bad advice from bad advisors? Well, let's keep Russ over LeBron, which the hilarious thing is, is there's not even one single angle there that makes any sense. They're both free agents after this coming season. They both are on huge contract numbers. So it's not like there's any contract flexibility you gain in the process. And LeBron is at least 1,000 times better at basketball at this point. I thought Russell Westbrook was one of the worst rotation players in the league this year. And, and, and LeBron James, I thought, was one of the top four or five players in the league this year. So it's just, it's completely ridiculous, but it's just, it, it, it's, it's what you expect at this point. You know, that was the most hilarious thing about Jeannie's interview that she went and did is it's just the latest example of a lack of self-awareness. Like if think about it, think about it like this, all of the news we've seen, all of the disaster, all of the shit show, the entire public, the entire Laker fan base is painfully aware of how poorly run this team is. And Jeannie Buss's response was to sit down with Bill Plaschke, the same guy who's been talking nonstop about trading LeBron and literally sit down with him and come to the defense of Linda Rambis and come to the defense of Kurt Rambis and come to the defense of everybody that's on her side and deflect any blame away from herself, but then be like, oh, it's my job to fix this. Jeannie, you put everybody in this position. Like you, this is your cake that you made. Now you have to deal with it. And, and it's, it's just ridiculous. This is the, you know, I, it, the last thing I'll say is Laker fans, there is a very there's a very clear defined linear path to restoring your status as a contender this offseason. And chances are you don't it doesn't happen because the people in charge are simply incompetent and incapable of executing all of the necessary steps on that path. You're it is like me asking you to go win a fight but I'm tying your left hand behind your back. You are competing against very good NBA teams that are full of talent, that have high-level, like hardworking, ambitious in executives in the front office that are in the weeds, watching games in Europe, watching games on League Pass every night. That know exactly what succeeds in the modern NBA. That know exactly they know exactly what their team's identity is and how to build around it. And then you've got the clown show running the Lakers. It's like if LeBron manages somehow to lead this team back to a championship. It's going to be one of the, it's already him winning one in 2020. We have to reevaluate that and and the and the way that he circum is basically navigated around the shitstorm that is the Laker ownership in front office. It's it's just completely ridiculous, but I mean, at this point you have to be pessimistic if you're a Laker fan because they're it's just unlikely that they do the things necessary to fix this. I think ridiculous clown show. Those are appropriate words. Like this genuinely seems satire level. I think Phil is either far too deep into some sort of spiritual cleanse in which his mind is no longer normally <laughs> operational or actively doing a bit because it is like unfathomable that any human being could come to the conclusions that we're hearing in these reports. All right, let's go from one wacky character to another because we've got a quote about Kyrie Irving. This is from Nets GM Sean Marks. He says, quote, we need people here that want to be here, that are selfless, that want to be part of something bigger than themselves. There's an objective and there's a goal at stake here. In order to do that, we're going to need availability from everybody. Jason, what do you think about that? <laughs> Self-awareness is one of the most important traits as an adult. Like, there's a reason why when you go in for a job interview, one of the questions they ask you about is like, what are your weaknesses? And if you if your answer is I don't have any weaknesses, then then you're then you have no self awareness. And the like it's it, Kyrie Irving came out of that game, game four after the sweep, and was like, uh, you know, I'm going to be collaborating with Sean and me and Kevin, we're and Joe Sai, we're gonna we're gonna get this thing back on the. I'm committed to this. We're this is collaborative, all this stuff, and it's like, dude, they don't believe you. They, they're not on your side. They view you as part of the problem. That's the reality of this situation. It's kind of like Russell Westbrook after that that horrible loss against the Pelicans when LeBron and AD are like sitting on the bench incensed and and Russ is coming up to them like patting them on the back like it's okay guys it, it's because Frank didn't play me I'll be ba I'll be back next time and everyone's like no man like that's <laughs> that's not what's happening it's just it, Kyrie has a complete and total lack of self awareness I think Kevin Durant is completely under the under his uh, under that spell as well because of the friendship which is cloud 
clouded his judgment because the reality of the situation is, is it was readily apparent to anybody that had been following Kyrie in the previous years that he was not the right guy to partner with. There's heavy intel that in the 2017 playoff run, while the Cavs were streaking towards a NBA a trip to the NBA Finals, literally uh, only lost one game in the Eastern Conference playoffs, there are plenty of reports that he was distancing himself from the locker room. That's ridiculous. Like, when times are good, he was pulling away. Then he threatened to get knee surgery to get himself traded out of town. Everything that he did with Boston, we don't have to get into it. It's well documented. This guy is a vagabond. He's a flake. He's not dependable. He, on any given day, his mood changes with like the weather. It, it literally, he is, it doesn't say anything about him as a quality of a human being. I'm sure he's, he's done amazing things to give back to the community. By all accounts, he's a great person, but he's meant to be a solo act. He's meant to go. He's meant to do things on his own because, in a team setting, he lacks the awareness of how important it is for him to be there and to be reliable and to be, you know, what the team needs him to be. And like, and and like for him, right after that game, he was talking about continuity being an issue. It's like, dude, you were the reason there was no continuity. And, and that's the thing. He's the guy that in the job interview, when they say, what are your weaknesses? He goes like, my weaknesses is that I show up too early and that I work too hard. <laughs> like that, mm-hmm. that's, that's literally the type of guy that he is. And it's just, you know, doesn't mean, mean anything about him as a human being, just means bad teammate. And, and it means that it's probably worthwhile to try to find someone else to partner with. First of all, I think it's amazing that you've now referred to Kyrie as a vagabond twice. It's two of my favorite moments in really the history of sports content because that word is so underappreciated and you're bringing it back and it's a huge public service. I also think you make an interesting point about, you know, Kyrie not operating within a team setting. I think that's intuitive, but it reminds me of big boss man Colin Cowherd said maybe a month or so ago that Kyrie was built to be a musician or a tennis player or some sort of brilliant individual performer but just you know somebody who could never understand that team construct who do you think is the least self-aware basketball player on the planet right now because i think there's a few good candidates so i'm interested in your thoughts oh it's russell westbrook hands down and it's not even close like at least at least with kyrie irving like he's good like like at least kyrie irving there's like this little bit of evidence that supports him being not self-aware and it's that he like nobody can guard him in the NBA you know like that that yeah. that's like his little that, that that's the thing that that's the driving force behind his ego outsizing his own self-awareness right Russell Westbrook was not a very good basketball player this year and right. yet if you injected him with true serum right now I've, we don't even have to do so. Just go on YouTube and look up Russell Westbrook's eg- exit interview and watch how often he directly references his own unwillingness to adapt or his own poor play or his own his own responsibility for what happened on the court that year. And like uh, you know, like specifically with the Lakers, guys, I covered them this year. I watched every single game they played twice. He was awful. It, like it, 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 it's the he is the poster boy for why counting stats in the box score do not reveal what a player's impact on the basketball court is because he was horrible off the ball. He was horrible on defense. Like his, his lapses in judgment and his lapses in awareness were like every single game, especially in pivotal moments. And then he's just convinced that it was everyone else's fault. So I think it's Russ in a landslide. I completely agree. And I love teeing you up on any Russ stuff, but my take for a while, like for several years has been, I think Russ might be the least aware athlete. I would say of all time, it feels like of my lifetime because it's in every respect. It's in terms of talking to the media and not acknowledging his own shortcomings. But more obviously than that, every single game, it's like you said, not understanding his skill set, being this otherworldly athlete. You know, he's lost a little bit of that, but who doesn't want to operate off the ball and actively cut and this horrible shooter who takes five, six threes a game and a million, you know, terrible mid-range pull-ups it's just everything he does screams i don't actually know what i'm good at i think i'm great at everything nothing can ever be my fault so i agree with you but i don't know Kyrie. i could see some people arguing for him the man is uh definitely off on his own plane a little bit but i agree with you on the right choice <laughs> yeah it's right. just it, it's it's just a classic case of it's a classic case of like if there was anything that would have humbled him into admitting these things it was this year and he and it didn't work 
Like if if this Lakers season couldn't convince Russell Westbrook that there were some things that he had to get better at, then nothing will. And I'm not sure that he'll ever have. We just talked about James Harden's potential, James Harden in his potential like redemption story. I don't know that Russ could ever achieve that without having some self-awareness and he just doesn't. Yeah, well, he's a lot more focused on people calling him Westbrook and how that negatively affects his family because he <laughs> is not at fault. He had a great season this year. All right, let's pivot to a quote about the Celtics here. This is from head coach Ime Udoka talking about their feelings after going down 3-2. He says, quote, of course we're going to be down. Guys are going to be upset about the outcome. We outplayed them for three and a half quarters. We talked about showing our resolve and we made it tougher on ourselves now. It'll make it sweeter when we bounce back, but we gave up a golden opportunity tonight. Jason, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I love Ime Udoka. I think he I think he represents what a modern NBA coach needs to be. You know, um, I've talked a lot on this show about how, you know, there's a certain level of offensive organization that's important, a certain amount of like you know, detailed sets and getting guys in the right spots and mainly spacing concepts, I think are most important at this point. And Ime obviously understands those things. But one of the most important things is managing personalities in the way that Ime Udoka resonates with his players and can convince them to do the things that need to be done to win games is so important. Like, and you, it'll be interesting. The interesting thing to track with him will be burnout. Because, for instance, like there are guys like Frank Vogel or uh, Tom Thibodeau who, in a short sample size, seem to be able to captivate his players into a certain level of work ethic and intensity, but it seems to wear on them. And then you'll see like seasons after where the same group of guys just don't get the same level of intensity under those coaches. So that'll be the next step for Ime is his, his ability to stay fresh and and to keep that level of commitment. You know, this series, I, I, I agree with him, though. Like, they made it harder on themselves, but this series is not over. You know, once again, Milwaukee's half-court offense in Game 5, 0 0.88 points per play. Boston's half-court offense in Game 5, 0 0.97 points per play. So in every single one of the five games in this series, both teams have struggled in the half-court, but Boston's been definitively better, about 10 points per every 100 possessions. So it's consistently been Boston's own self-sabotage that has hurt them. Milwaukee scored 2.14 points per transition play. How insane is that? Literally, they're scoring more than a layup on every transition play. That's where that's consistently been where this series has turned. The difference is, is Boston was also great in transition in game five. They averaged 1.7 points per transition play where Milwaukee dominated. This game was the offensive glass. We've talked about it on the show. They had 17 offensive rebounds. Bobby Portis had seven. Milwaukee scored. This is a wild stat, Carson. Milwaukee scored an additional 0 0.35 points per miss in putbacks. So, if it just literally every time they so think of it like this to simplify it every time they missed three shots they got a point in offensive rebound putbacks which is just a wild way to steal a basketball game and that's how they did it so boston was better in the half court they actually won the fast break point battle and they lost the game specifically on the offensive glass but that's something they can clean up marcus smart said after the game all we have to do is box out but it all comes down to those details in their offensive organization i thought the stat as wild as all those stats are i thought the stat of last night's game was boston attempted zero threes in the fourth quarter now think of it like this milwaukee's defense is specifically set up to give up threes because they overhelp in the paint now, they did drop out Brooke Lopez. They went with Bobby Portis and Giannis at the 4-5, and they switched everything. But, as I've said, the only way to attack a switching defense, because a switching defense is designed to bait you into stupid pull-up jump shots. Even if you make them, they stagnate your team. They're not great looks. The only way to beat a switching defense is to beat individual matchups to the rim. <clears throat> Because if you can beat individual matchups to the rim, you will force help. And if you force help, you can get quality three-point shots or quality opportunities to attack closeouts. They attempted zero threes. 
which tells you that in that and Brook Lopez didn't play in that fourth quarter, so they switched everything the entire quarter, and Boston just neglected to apply any rim pressure. They fell directly into Milwaukee's trap, and it cost them the game. Now I'm off of Boston in terms of like predicting anything with them because I was off of them before they even won the game in Game Five because their 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 lack of discipline and their they they're a guy who would they're a team that would be killing for a guy like James Harden on the roster. And that might be something they have to look into. They need an adult on the perimeter that can orient them and put them in positions that they need to be. But I, w- I, I think I wouldn't count Boston out in game six at all. And I wouldn't count Milwaukee out if Boston won because both, team is, both teams have shown the, the ability to win on the, on the road. So it's just, you know, it's, it's a really, really interesting series. I think, I think these are two of probably the best teams in the league. They're easily the two best teams in the West or in the East, excuse me. And this series kind of feels like a, a conference finals type of series. And Milwaukee stole three games in this series simply by, by winning on all the details. We talk about swing factors. That's a phrase I use all the time on the show, a swing factor. If the entire game played out in the half court, Boston would have won this series in a sweep, but it doesn't. There are swing. Fa- it's like special teams in football or turnovers. You can you can be the team that runs the ball all night long with no issue, that that is picking them apart with your passing game. But if you have a couple of sloppy turnovers and you get dominated in special teams, you can cost yourself a game. And that's what's been happening right. to Boston is they're just getting destroyed on the margins and all of the details. And that's specifically why, like like I, I even if Boston wins this series, I would feel a lot less confident about them winning the title because they just don't pay enough attention to those things. It has been fascinating to watch that play out throughout this series. It's been the same thematic issues that you've touched on over and over again. And obviously, incredible accomplishment for Giannis particularly, but the Bucks overall, if they're able to pull this off with Middleton out. But it does feel in a lot of ways like a failing of the Celtics, just given the level that we saw them reach down the stretch of the season and the expectations that they drummed up and the opportunity that they had with how things have shaken out, Middleton not being there. And Obviously, Miami, a very good team in the conference finals, but I think certainly Boston has a higher ceiling. So it'll be interesting to see sort of what the response is if they fall short here, because this definitely ended up being a pretty golden opportunity, it feels like. All right. Yeah, I think it would be adult adult playmaker. Just somebody who's a grown up on the perimeter. That's their. That's going to be their their go to need. I don't know who that is. I don't know if you target like a or someone like a Ricky Rubio or someone along those lines. Just I don't think you need a, another primary ball handler, but you just need somebody that can get Tatum and Brown off the ball in, in terms yeah. of bringing the ball up the floor and making that initial decision. You need someone to throw the ball to Tatum here and be like, "Here, dude, all you have to think about is scoring in this post up. Here, dude, all you need to think yeah. about is like drawing this double team out of this spot." But like them them bringing the ball up the floor and making that initial decision is too often resulting in things going off the rails. That's always been my thought with them and it was interesting cuz I sort of felt like and obviously there are differences, but their vision of, okay, we have our two score first wings and they're going to be our offensive initiators very consistently out of isolation and pick and roll. The model that I looked at and thought, okay, that's probably most similar was what the Clippers had with Kawhi and PG last year. But I thought to make that work, you needed, first of all, Kawhi and PG, who are just a better tandem to begin with, a more developed playmaking tandem as well. And like one of the greatest shooting teams ever around them. And still, obviously Kawhi gets hurt but it was a second round exit. So it's always seemed to me like a lofty goal. And I think you touched on it. I mean, so many great teams today have just straight up that dynamic star scoring and playmaking guard. But if you don't have that guy, if you do just have the lead wings, you need a table setter. You need somebody to control the flow because it's just too much to ask of those guys, I think, to consistently be great decision makers and facilitators and everything that they need to be right now if Boston wants to achieve its ultimate ceiling. Yeah, and one last super quick note, like this is quickly becoming one of the most it's impossible to quantify. It doesn't show up in a box score. I have no way, I don't have any idea how to measure it. But game management is like one of the most valuable basketball skills that we're learning in this postseason run. And again, it's you just know it when you see it. It's just an it's just it guys that can it's almost like it manifests in pace in a lot of ways. Like you just can tell, like when you watch Luca, there's just a a control that he has over the flow of the game. 
and Chris Paul has that same control. Steph Curry has that same control. Giannis has that same control. You just you either have it or you don't. I don't know how to quantify mm-hmm. it, but it's just Boston doesn't have it, and it's the biggest reason. You know, Milwaukee has no business being in a closeout game tomorrow. They have no business yeah. being in a closeout game, and they are in one. Because of Giannis's greatness and because Boston soiling themselves. Like that's literally what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree completely. All right, we've got a quote from our guy Draymond here about the Warriors having to obviously make this adjustment from playing one version of the Grizzlies to playing another. And obviously we saw them get blown out in historic fashion in game five. He said, You almost have to make the adjustment in this series as if we're starting an entirely different series. You kind of have to rethink the whole game plan because our game plan was built around John Morant. Jason, you've talked a lot about the trade-offs that you have losing jaw, obviously losing his lead scoring, but gaining some of that size, athleticism, defense. So what are your thoughts on that? What are some of the key adjustments the Warriors need to make there to actually go out and close out this series? So I agree with him in respect to the fact that yes, like all your coverages change because there's a certain amount of like a overloading that you do for jaw, you know, right? Especially on your defensive scheme, your pick and roll coverage, all those kinds of things. There are absolutely some massive differences uh, without jaw, right? And obviously without jaw, it's harder to get dribble penetration because there's just better perimeter defenders on the floor for Memphis. But To me, this game tomorrow is so simple. There is a clear, uh, like easily defined path to winning tomorrow for Golden State, and it's do the physical job. So that means, you know, they went, uh, the reason why it was a buzzsaw in game five, or get, yeah, game five, the reason why that was a buzzsaw was because uh, uh, Memphis had a relentless physical attack on that game in every facet. Offensive glass, transition, defensive intensity, all of those things. And they manifested in all the stats. They forced a million turnovers, they dominated the game in transition, and they had a million second chance points, right? Those are all what I would call controllables. Those are all things that they can control. They just didn't want to do it in game five, to simply to put it simply. And we talked about it on the show. I don't judge them for that. It's a very common phenomenon. It's why I bet on that game. It's why we sent that out as a betting opportunity before the game. Simply put, older veteran teams going into a bigger, more athletic, younger team in an elimination game scenario on the road, it's just a buzzsaw. And it's very rare that you'll see the veteran team match that physicality, especially when they have a home opportunity to close out on the horizon, right? I mean, you you could argue that's what happened to Phoenix tonight on a different type of level. You could argue that they could have brought another level, but they didn't because they knew they had a home game on the horizon, right? So my thing is like, If they go into game six and Golden State relentlessly boxes out, works on their, uh, like sits in a defensive stance and contains their ball handlers, which by the way, Memphis without John Morant is a guardable team, a very guardable team, if you do the work. And then get back in transition, take care of the basketball. All of those things right there automatically puts you in a position to win. Now, the, the reason why it was close in game four. And the other thing they'll have to watch out for is early in the series, they got a ton of dribble penetration. We did a whole thing on this in game three surrounding Jordan Poole. It was our opening segment. So the other important detail, all those physical details, but they also, and I would argue this is a physical detail as well, they need to put their head down and get by people. They need to get some rim pressure. They need to compromise Memphis's defense with dribble drive, which they just simply didn't do nearly enough in the last two games. But the reason why I'm picking Golden State is all those things I just said, they know that. Draymond knows that. Steph knows that. They have the appropriate fear. And they will. I expect them to go home tomorrow night to sit in a defensive stance and to contain Memphis's lack of ball handling. I expect them to sit down and box out and push guys out of the lane and crash the glass. I expect them to sprint back in transition. I expect them to take care of the basketball. I expect them to do all those things that the grown-up team usually does when they know they have to, and I think they'll get a win tomorrow. All right, enough basketball, Jason. Let's get to the good stuff here because it's officially Star Wars season. We've got Obi-Wan Kenobi coming out yeah, in a couple weeks. So let's give you a couple of appropriate quotes for a very important question about the Star Wars world. 
Here are some quotes from Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen on Revenge of the Sith. McGregor said episode three was a really good movie. Hayden says it's a phenomenal film. So Jason, let me ask you, are the prequels good? I'm pro prequel. I There are things I that, that I dislike about them. You know, so here's the thing. The sequel trilogy is an entire giant pile of garbage. Okay. The entire thing, it's an insulting, it's insulting to George Lucas. It's insulting to all Star yeah. Wars fans. It's insulting to yeah. all of us, right? So it, it just, it, 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 they knew they were robbing us. They knew they were going after our wallets at the expense of our Star Wars fanhood and everything that we stand for. And they didn't care. Okay. What the prequels were was George Lucas achieving something that was very difficult to do, but also that had an element of like some cheesiness, some diving a little bit too far into the weeds, some bad acting, some directorial mistakes, things like that, some things that didn't flow, some things that were slow. So those are just nitpicky things. And of course, like, you know, not every movie is going to be great. So that that goes that that's just part of the deal. I thought Revenge of the Sith was a phenomenal move movie. And to to this day, and this is why I hope that Star Wars will attempt to leave this timeline and do this again. But the concept of that fallen Jedi, you know, good turning evil, but that good turning evil and becoming way more powerful and becoming this entity that has to be dealt with. That to me is like a home run every single time. And it's the easiest, it's the easiest way to, to build an organic new story. So I hope they eventually do something like that, but I'm, I'm with, I'm, I'm with both of those guys. I thought the prequel trilogy was good and revenge of the Sith was an awesome movie. Yeah. I think there's some serious prequel flaws. I rewatched all of them pretty recently. Attack of the clones was my favorite as a kid. Watched it a million times. Not not good with hindsight, but Revenge of the Sith is my favorite Star Wars movie, so I will stand with you and the esteemed gentleman on this one. I'm very, very pro Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I may I may or may not have something coming down the pipeline that is Star Wars related as a separate venture, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. <laughs> All right, guys, a couple of quick notes before we get out of here. Remember to like this video. I sincerely appreciate you guys supporting the show. It would mean the world to me if you took the time to hit that like button. Also, follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. That's where I release all the video content that backs up some of the concepts that I talked about on the show. I sincerely appreciate your guys' support. We will be back tomorrow night after a couple more game sixes, and I will see you guys then. The Volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.